Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 90th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How you doing, buddy? Good, good. Good to be back in town. We were out of town for work, so it's always nice to get back and sleep in your own bed, right? It's very nice. Um, so we'll get started here, uh, just as always with taking the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on March 24th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is down 0.32% for the month and up three and a half percent for the year. The Dow up 2.8% for the month and up almost 6% for the year. The NASDAQ down 4.68% for the month and up a half a percent for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 6.21% for the month and up 8.15% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is down 2.25% for the month and up 2.44% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.02%, the two-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.15%, and the 10-year Treasury yielding 1.61%. So not a whole lot of stuff going on from the past week, Matt. Uh, There are two things that I wanted to discuss really quickly. Uh, The Fed came out and said um, that they are planning to keep interest rates at 0% essentially through 2023 and continuing to add uh, to its balance sheet at a rate of at least $120 billion per month. So in essence, in plain English for listeners, they're going to print money at a rate of $120 billion a month and use that and go buy things, U.S. treasuries, corporate bonds, etc. Right. Got it. Right. Which is which is good for, for asset prices, right? Yep. So um, that's no small number. No, no, that's a, it's a large, quite frankly, that's a very large number. Very large. Number. <laughs> $120 billion per month. Um, so uh, the next thing I wanted to go over uh, really quickly was a COVID vaccination update from Bespoke Investment Group, and this was from March 19th. So their research indicates that individuals over age 65 uh, should reach herd immunity by the end of April and that the total U.S. adult population by the end of June. So that's just an interesting statistic. Very interesting. You know how I feel about projections. So see how this plays out. But but hopefully uh, more good news ahead in the next couple of months as it relates to COVID. Uh, so moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. Matt, I just wanted to bring this up again since we talked about the Buffett indicator last that week. Fun. That was fun. So I'm, glad, if, I'm glad we got that uh, question submitted by Mark. Yeah, so if people want to hear that conversation uh, about what the Buffett indicator is and how that works, you can go back and listen to episode 89. And it's at the very, very end. Yeah. Yep. So... Um, Ben Carlson had a tweet uh, and he said this, I keep seeing people talking about the Buffett indicator that clearly shows we're in a bubble 
Munger said a few years ago that Buffett doesn't believe in this thing anymore. So Charlie Munger, um, Buffett's right-hand man, essentially, um, a few years ago said, just because Warren thought of something 20 years ago, it does not become a law of nature. There is no natural correlation between the two, GDP and corporate profits. So again, the Buffett indicator takes the total U.S. stock market, divide it by the GDP, um, and it's at you know historical elevated level levels. People saying that you know the market's extremely overvalued, um, but you know I thought this was just interesting that just a few years ago uh, Munger came out and said that there's there's no correlation here. Yeah, I mean just kind of like what we what we talked about in episode eighty nine, and the big factor there is playing in interest rates as an overlay. And, you know, you do that and you look at the interest rate environment back in 2000, 2001 and overlay that to now, I think it completely blows that narrative up. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, the next thing I had, Matt, was a excerpt from a blog written by Charlie Bellello titled, What's the Best Hedge Against Inflation? And just wanted to read a couple lines from this. So Charlie says, when the most, or excuse me, when most investors read the word inflation, they immediately think gold as a conventional wisdom states that there is no better hedge against rising prices. Is this true? Let's take a look. Since 1975, gold has advanced 846% versus a 407% increase in the consumer price index, which is the benchmark for inflation, right? Mm -hmm. Case closed then, right? You should buy gold to protect against inflation? Not necessarily. You see, gold is not the only asset class in existence. As it turns out, bonds, REITs, which stands for Real Estate Investment Trusts, and stocks have all been far superior hedges against inflation than gold. And they've all done so with lower volatility than gold. So then he um, posts this chart, Matt, of the annual return of each of these asset classes from January of 1975 to February of 2021. Interesting. And the annual return since January 1975 for gold is 5% per year. Investment grade bonds is 8% per year. Real estate investment trusts. 11.9% per year, and the S&P 500 index, 12.3% per year. So again, people you know, think that gold is the end-all, be-all hedge against inflation, and that's not the case. And he points out that there was a 20-year period from January of 1981 through December of 2000 when the U.S. inflation, uh, according to the CPI, rose 102%. Well, gold declined 54%. So it's not a direct correlation that just because we're getting inflation that gold is going to do well. Right? I absolutely agree with that statement. So I just wanted to make that point that gold's not the only hedge to inflation, as most people think. And, you know, any asset class virtually can act as a hedge against inflation. You know, I'm not against looking at investment classes that can make clients money, right? I just prefer things that are either a product or service that is being used actively. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you start looking at the narrative of investments um, that you are buying just with the thought that someone's going to pay a higher price for this, right? It's a lot more challenging, I think, than you're buying a stock in a company that produces a service or a product that's in demand. Right, exactly. And I feel like people can relate to that. More that's why too. I'm trying to throw that out right? there for listeners, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, I don't want to beat the dead horse. I think it's but... good you brought this up, though, because yeah. you're going to see more headlines in the news, Mark, about inflation. And I think that it's important. You know, you're going to start seeing all the gold and silver commercials on radio, on TV. I mean, you remember the last time. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's just good just to throw out, hey, here's a bigger picture you might want to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And an add to, to this conversation as well. Um, ben Carlson uh, posted a blog last week on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense, on this topic. And he said that since 1928, the U.S. stock market is up 9.8% per year, while inflation has averaged 3% per year. So stocks have grown at nearly 7% more than the rate of inflation. One of the reasons for this is that the fact that earnings and dividends also grow at a healthy clip above inflation. Boom. Over the past 93 years, earnings have grown at roughly 5% per year. Stocks also have perhaps the greatest income stream of any asset. Dividends have grown at roughly 5% per year. Mic drop. So that just validates what you just said, right? Mic drop. Yep. So, um, okay. Well, that's enough of that. I just wanted to point that out there for people. Um, the next thing that I had was a chart from BlackRock that shows the U.S. government's gross debt and net interest cost since 1990. So, again, we've talked about this a lot. Everyone freaks out about, you know, how much debt the U.S. government has, but the conversation is never around the interest cost to the government, right? Yes, so I just wanted yes. to point this out. So the chart shows that the U.S. government has more than twice the amount of debt it had in 1990, but is paying less than half of the interest expense it was in 1990. So you know how it is, Matt. People say the debt is out of control. The U.S. can't possibly borrow any more money. This isn't sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. But in my opinion, unless interest rates go through the roof, the U.S. has a lot more room to borrow money. Fact. Um, in my opinion. Yeah. And people I think people just need to like put it in a personal situation. Right. So think about it this way. Someone borrows fifty thousand dollars at a 10 percent interest rate. That'll run you five thousand dollars per year in interest expense. Right. Correct. Scenario two is that you borrow one hundred thousand dollars at a three percent interest rate. That will cost you 3% per year in interest expense. So you have double the amount of money you're borrowing. But because the interest rate is low. The expense is lower, right? Now, think of this. You got the 10-year treasury sitting at 1.6%, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the debt that the U.S. carries doesn't go out that far. Right. I mean, they have treasury notes that go out up to 30 years, but that's not a bulk of the debt that's that's been issued by the government. Right. It's all short-term. Right. So, you know, I think p too many people are, are focused on the overall debt level without taking into account the interest rates. And interest rates, Matt, as we both know, have been falling for 30 years now. So it makes sense to me that, that that's going up. People borrow more when money's cheaper. So in my opinion, this isn't this isn't a bubble. I would actually be scratching my head if that hasn't gone up in the past 30 years, right? Because it, it makes sense if you just stop and think about it rather than just freak out because you saw something in the media about the debt that the U.S. has. You know? I think it's great. And I'm going to remember this because in the future, I can see us getting questions from listeners about this. And I'm going to reference this podcast 90 because I, I think everything we just kind of went through and what you mentioned there is accurate, in my opinion. Right. And there's a lot of other moving parts to it. And there's people out there that's like, well, either way, we're, you know, we're. Uh, the next generation is gonna is gonna feel the pain of this and all of this and you know that's a whole nother conversation but I'm just throwing it out there that you know it's 
this is normal for this to happen when interest rates have been falling for 30 years. Agreed. So. Agreed. Well, um, I got a couple things, Mark, and it's going to be under a similar narrative of my next pieces. So this is also from Charlie at Compound Advisors on March 21st. It's a bond market update. Okay. And this data set covers the Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Aggregate Bond Index. And he posted a chart and it showed about 11 instances since 1996 to 2021, where the aggregate bond index sold off from its high water mark greater than 3%. So Mark, there was 11 instances, including the most recent where this occurred. And so why am I pointing this out? I want to address what I feel is a false narrative by some investors, which is you can't lose money in bonds. Correct. Okay. Correct. That needs to be, yeah. That, that needs, needs to be corrected. Yes, it does. Okay. So the reason I wanted to bring this up today is this chart shows that the Barclays uh, U.S. Aggregate Bond Index since August 6th of last year, Mark, through March 18th of this year, that covers 224 days, the index is down 4%. Okay. So the reason I'm highlighting this, and there were 10 other instances since 1996 where it, it sold off, okay? So I want to make sure that I'm addressing some of those listeners very directly in this, and that the perception is, well, if stocks go down, bonds should go up. Even though there are instances where that occurs, that is not a tried and true rule of thumb. No, and just look at the the the, the last instance before uh, you know August of this year was March of 2020. Stocks were in free fall and bonds fell almost six and a half percent from their high. Great point, and I appreciate you bringing that up. So I just want to kind of throw out there to listeners that you know just because you have fixed income or bond holdings doesn't necessarily mean a they're bulletproof or b they can't go down in value. And so I just want to throw that out there as a cautionary tale, because I think most investors' perceptions, Mark, are the opposite of that. Yeah. And I think if people want, you know, a sure way not to, quote unquote, lose money ever on paper is just having your account in cash. But then you have the problem of inflation. losing the purchasing power due to inflation. Yeah. So again, we've talked about this with investing and anything else in life is that there's, uh, there's no holy grail with this. Nope. You know, nope. And I just want to just address that with those bond market returns lately. And with rates short term moving higher, you know, people are, you know, seeing losses um, in their in their bond holdings. And they're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right, right, right. All right, I got one more thing, and uh, this is me poking the bear. I, I got to do this to you, Mark. You know I love you. So <laughs> this was a tweet from, um, it's a, got a funny handle. It, the, um, the gentleman's name is Wall Street Jesus, okay? <laughs> but um, he got tons and tons of followers. He posts yeah. a lot of different things. So he posted this on March 19th, and you ready for this? It's the Goldman Sachs S&P 500 Index Targets, Okay. It gets better, my friend. This one, they are forecasting by the year end of this year, the S&P will be about 4,300. And they're forecasting at the end of next year, it's going to be 4,600. But you know what really, really grinds my gears with this? Okay. So they have, for example, the largest S&P 500 index holding is Apple. Okay. 
So you can go online, listeners. You can Google, you know, holdings within the S&P 500 index, and you're going to see the largest holding is Apple. I am not giving an opinion to buy or sell the name whatsoever. All I'm pointing out, for example, is that this firm, in this example, Goldman Sachs, happens to have a very bearish or negative price target on the number one holding in the index. So Mark, do you even think it's realistic that these targets could be reached without participation of the largest holding in a market-weighted index? And I'm going to wait. I just think there might be a little bit of disconnect going on at Goldman Sachs right now. <laughs> two people saying two different things. Quite interesting. It is. And the other thing and I want to throw out there is this. They show this hypothetical chart and they show like these linear lines from today to the end of 2021 and a linear line from the end of 2021 to the end of 2022. And you and I both know if it were just an easy peasy linear line, a lot more people would be in the market. And the returns would be a lot less like we talked about in the past. Right, right. I just, I still, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to wrap my head around price targets and why, well, I can tell you why they occur because it makes news, right? Um, gets media attention, but you know, it's just like, how can you, how can you sit there and say, you know, by the end of 2022, we're going to be at 4,600. We might, but we might not be, right? I think it's just... You know, I think we're mature enough to know that we can't predict the future. Exactly. And, you know, this is just one of those things that more price targets that I think you just you don't put any weight to. It just oh, it, I saw that and I, and I knew where they were at on the largest S&P holding. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. Talk well, about, yeah, well, talk yeah. about <laughs> a disconnect. <laughs> well, the group uh, obviously is not on the same side as whoever the Goldman analyst is with the price target on, yeah. on Apple. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. So, very interesting. Well, I'll send it back to you, Mark. Okay. So, uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to the financial planning topic of the week. And I think this will be a fun one for people, Matt. Um, so, it comes from a brief video created by Peter Lazaroff and Sarah Galsheimer from PlanCorp. And they have a conversation about how to save if you're expecting a baby. So there are a lot of good tidbits in this one, I thought. Uh, it's a short video clip. Uh, it's only about eight minutes and it's on YouTube. Um, but I just wanted to talk about it a bit further and also wanted to get your two cents, Matt, since you have three kids of your own. So we'll see this how applicable some of this stuff is. This will be fun. Um, so the first thing that they mention is that spouses should compare their company benefit plans to see uh, whose benefits are the most friendly to children, right? Yeah, so the dual income household, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, things to be you know aware of with your company benefits plan is number one, does your company offer an HSA, right? So health savings account. Yeah. So if you're covered by a high deductible health plan, um, you're eligible for a health savings account. And the family contribution limit for 2021 is $7,200. So this amount can be rolled over from year to year if you don't use it, but it's an extremely cost-effective way to pay for medical costs for your baby because it's all tax-free money, right? So you Absolutely. contribute to it tax uh, pre-tax, 
And then if it's used for qualified medical expenses, then that's tax-free as well. Yes. Um, so this is a really, really good way. You don't have to fund it all. You don't have to do all 7200 but maybe you put a little bit in there so you have access to some tax-free funds to take care of medical expenses medical expenses for your your new child. The other thing, Mark, is more and more of these HSA custodians are giving or allowing the ability to invest that balance, Mm kind of similar to a 401k or 403b. Right. So that's another potential uh, positive there. Right. Uh, The second thing is some companies offer a uh, dependent care flex spending account. So this is a huge benefit um, that a lot of companies offer uh, in today's day and age, and it's a great way to save for things like daycare. So in a little bit here, I'll, we'll talk about daycare, but Matt, I've heard daycare being as expensive as $1,500 per month. I've heard both, some crazy stories if, as well. If both spouses continue to work, it can get really, Real expensive. really expensive. Um, so again, you can fund this uh, dependent care flex spending account uh, and it's also tax-free if it's used for dependent care, right? Yep. yep. Um, and number th- three is just an obvious one, just health insurance that is the most cost-effective when it comes uh, to best coverage for, for family plans, right? So, Yeah, and, and, and listeners, if, if you're a grandparent out there, maybe I would recommend you share this part of the podcast, you know, with your kids as they, you know, have, you know, children of their own in the future. I think this is a lot of good tidbits, Mark. Yeah. So the second thing is, you know, it might sound kind of silly, but I think you should, you know, build it into your budget is that, you know, future moms are going to have to spend money on maternity clothing. Absolutely. Um, So this should be built into your budget if it's not already. So Sarah recommended um, borrowing maternity clothing from friends and family so that costs don't get out of control. Um, but Matt, I'm curious to see what your wife, Rachel did here when it came to, you know, maternity clothing. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's stores out there that specialize in that. And I remember that, you know, we would have like an event, let's say it's like, uh, you know, Palm Sunday coming up or Easter. And I remember, you know, the challenge for her to, to find clothes during those times was not easy and it's not cheap. And, you know, so that's kind of what we had to do during those times and then, you know, baby's born, you know, and you're, you're back to a different situation. But yeah, it's not cheap. And that's one of those factors that I think a lot of new parents, per se, um, forget about as a cost, mm-hmm. right? I mean, think about all this stuff. I mean, car seats these days are outrageous. Strollers, outrageous. It's crazy. Right. That's why it's good to have uh, a good baby registry. You got it. (laughs) Throw a party, pop some champagne. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, So, yeah, and and that'll depend, too. You know, if if you're planning on just having one child, then maybe it makes sense more to borrow um, from family or friends. But if you're, you know, if you're expecting to have, you know, several children, then maybe, you know, you bulk up with your first child and then just reuse that stuff when you get pregnant for the second or third time. Absolutely. I know there's a lot of um, friends groups on uh, on Facebook that has been useful for Rachel with similar instances in the past. So that's another area I would recommend that that listeners maybe find those connections. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Number three kind of surrounds getting yourself prepared to have less discretionary income, right? Mm, Okay. So I'm assuming when you and Rachel first had Rowan, you know, all of your discretionary income went towards Rowan, right? Oh, yeah. So you have none of those. You have none of the infrastructure at your house. No, you don't have a baby crib. You don't have a changing table, right? You're not used to spending money on 
either reusable diapers that you could reuse or disposable. I mean, go down the list. Pacifiers. I was buying those Phillips pacifiers like they were going out of style, man. <laughs> right? You know, so it's like it's just insane all this stuff you just don't think about because you don't have the infrastructure. Right, right. So, you know, when you find out you're pregnant, I would start saving money into an account for costs, you know, associated with a new baby, like you just said, uh, pacifiers, uh, diapers, you know, everything that comes with having a baby, uh, costs like daycare, if both parents are going to continue to work. But like we said, daycare can get really expensive, uh, depending on where you go. So I would recommend people starting off small the first few months and slowly building that account up the closer and closer you get to the due date. And like I said earlier, this is going to help people adjust to not having as much discretionary income coming in the door. Absolutely. Um, you know, so you're sort of prepared to deal with that drop in income every month. And I'm going to throw this out there too, Matt, that once people know they're pregnant, they should sit down and adjust their budget to prepare for what their new budget is going to look like. Cause it's going to be completely different from what it was without the baby. Absolutely. Mark. The other thing I'll throw out there about daycare is you got to remember a lot of these areas, a lot of these daycare centers or firms are pretty much at capacity most of the time. Now, if we have a recession, that tends to recede. But in these, um, in today's age, where a lot of dual-income households, you know, a lot of their kids are in daycare, and it's hard to get in the queue. So then, I I throw this out there. This might sound a little crazy, but the minute you find out you're pregnant, you want to start talking to daycares if you're going to need one and get in the queue, get on the wait list. And I know that sounds a little kooky but you got to get ahead of that yeah I've you heard, can't wait till baby's born yeah i've heard of of daycares that have waitlists for over a year yes sir it's accurate i've What's, seen it i've heard about it um you know that's just insane and the other thing i'll throw out there is just you know don't belittle the fact of you know what this stuff cost and i'm gonna throw out one thing i do not want listeners to skimp on which is definitely car seats mm -hmm. you know one thing people don't realize is that car seats expire shocker so it's like whenever in the past we've traveled and rented cars and we didn't bring our car seats with us, the first thing I do before I put the kid in the car is I check the expiration date on the car seat. Half the time, they're like three years past the date. Right. And I go right back up and I'm like, give me a new one, baby. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It's a good tip. Um, and, you know, the, the last two things that I'll say, Matt, is, you know, this is a really good time to make sure where um, your emergency savings are where they need to be. So to have at least that three to six month living expenses, um, because things are going to come up, right? Yes. And you want to yes. have liquid uh, funds to be able to access if you need them. So this let's, is give, let's give people some ideas on how they can kind of fund these savings accounts. And so um, one idea comes to mind is if you have direct deposit through your employer, you now you can start up a second direct deposit for, you know, 50 bucks a pay period, 100 bucks a pay period right into that savings account. You won't see it hit your checking. You know, that's idea one. Mm -hmm. Idea two is if your company offers some sort of stock purchase plan and you tend to get some sort of a bump or a bonus to do that, that could be a very cost effective way to do it. What else comes to mind for you, Mark? Yeah, the other thing is, because I know some people like to separate their different buckets of money for different purposes. So um, like for me, for example, I like to have my savings account separate from where I do my normal checking account, because that way I know that, hey, this this money is earmarked for emergency savings. There you go. 
So, you know, one way people could do it is that they could, you know, open up a, an online high yield savings account somewhere, set up a link between your primary checking account and the high yield savings account. And every month or every two weeks when your paycheck hits, you move over a certain amount of money every month, whether that's 50 bucks or 200 bucks a month, every month into that emergency savings account. So that's another way that I think people can do it. And when I say high yield savings account right now, it's like <laughs> that's point, a loose term. 0.5% per year. Term. Um, I think when I started mine, it was a couple of years ago, it was at 2%. And yep. I was excited about that. But with interest rates coming down, they've, they've come down. But again, the purpose of this money is not to make crazy amounts of money on this, right? This is for a rainy day fund. Um, so, you know, just yeah, be aware that's why of that. We're, 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 and generally speaking, we recommend three to four. And the only comment I would say is if you're in a profession where there is more, um, the income's more lumpy or not as consistent, we then would recommend to go to five to six months. Yeah. So just to throw that out there too. Yeah, I think that's good. And the last thing is think about increasing your life insurance coverage. Um, oh yeah, here we so go. I want you to talk a little bit more about this map, but usually, um, if you're working for a, a larger company, um, you know, they offer life insurance benefits and sometimes they'll give you, you know, for example, one times your salary and in life insurance, and then you have the ability to buy extra insurance through the company, but sometimes that still isn't enough. Um, so can you kind of just give a couple minute explanation on, you know, what we think people should have in terms of life insurance coverage, especially if they have young kids on the way. Absolutely. So as Mark said, listeners, your employer most likely offers some sort of basic insurance. And what we see as a general rule of thumb is one times your annual compensation. In addition, what we see with uh, most employers is that they offer the ability to buy an additional two to four times your pay without the need to apply for your medical underwriting, which is where they're really looking at your health profile and giving you, in essence, a health rating. With that being said, that's usually the path of least resistance. Now, let's before I go to outside insurance, I'm going to stick with employer. The um, disadvantage with it is you can only raise it during open enrollment. Okay? Unless you have a qualifying event like getting married or having a baby. So okay. you can do you can that. do it during that. Yep. So that's another thing we got to be kind of careful about. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'll kind of throw out there when it talks about personal, when we are sitting down with um, potential clients or clients and we're talking about income replacement, we talk about, you know, if something were to happen to the breadwinner per se of the household, we would need to make sure we have enough money for the surviving spouse and the children to maintain their lifestyle. And statistically speaking, one to five times someone's compensation is not going to cut the mustard. So with that being said, we um, our practice goes off of something called a 5% withdrawal rate. So for every million dollars of life insurance proceeds, we could replicate up to $50,000 a year in the form of income. You know, so if we're sitting down with an individual who is bringing home $100,000 a year, in just plain math, they either need to have liquid assets and or a combination of life insurance of $2 million just to replicate that. Right. And so what we normally find, and this is a, this is just my opinion and what I see, is that a lot younger uh, couples uh, with kids tend to be underinsured. And I see people that are older and closer to retirement overinsured because they're so close to retirement and their liquid assets are sufficient enough where they really don't need that much insurance anymore. 
And so I really want to target these comments towards our younger demographic on this podcast, because I really think that not only if you're married, but if you're married and you have children, you have financial dependence, you got to make sure you have an appropriate amount of insurance. In these days, you can go out, shop a temporary or a term insurance policy, get it for 10, 15, 20 years. And generally speaking, it's very cost effective. It's just the hassle of doing it. And I get it. It's not fun. It's not fun to talk about people's mortality, but it's something you have to do. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think you know, people that are in the young, younger demographic that you're talking about, you know, they grew up and kind of, you know, have always thought that, you know, insurance is a sham and you're just wasting money. And in this case, we hope that we're wasting our money with, you know, the term insurance premiums every month, right? Yep. That you're never going to, you know, go through an event where one of the spouses passes away, but you have to think of it in terms of, especially if you have a stay at home parent, you know, you have to have life insurance on them too, because what is it worth for them to stay at home and take care of the family, to cook and to clean Absolutely. and take care of the household? So you have to put a value on that too. So it's not only the spouse that is has the income that, that, that's bringing home the money every month, but if you have one spouse that's staying at home to run the household, they you have to put a dollar amount on you that. You absolutely do. And again, it's that conversation. It's not fun to talk about mortality. No, but, but it's a necessary It's one. necessary. The other thing I'll throw out there is um, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about how much life insurance you need, think about this listener. If there's other people besides your spouse or your kids that are financially dependent on you, you need to plan for that. Whether it's a parent, whether it is a sibling, maybe you have someone in your family with special needs. You know, there's a lot of factors also just beyond your spouse or your children who might be financially dependent on you that you also have to consider when you determine how much insurance you need. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, that's all I had, Matt, with, uh, regards to saving with uh, baby on the way. Do you have anything else that Not comes to your head that you went through back in the day? That's noteworthy. Um, I'll throw this out there. Um, people usually ask me, Matt, how much money should I be saving for my kid's college? Right. And I have a very, very loose general rule of thumb when I reply to this, which is this. Um, I say right when the baby's born, if you want to pay for the average cost of 50% of a four-year public school, you should be thinking to save somewhere around $250 to $300 a month consistently from day one they're born until the child's 18. In very loose math. If it's invested in uh, stock-oriented mutual funds, you should be able to pay for right around 50% of a four-year college. Now, factors we don't know, forward-looking returns on equity mutual funds and the forward inflation on college cost. Mm -hmm. But it's just a general rule of thumb. And I guess the last thing I'll say is I want to make sure parents are prioritizing their retirement over the children's college funding. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think it's really, really important for parents to take care of their own retirement planning and funding before they start saving for their kids' college in a 529 plan. So, for example, if you have you know aunts or uncles or grandparents who are going to get uh, your child money for birthdays, Christmas, other holidays that you might celebrate – you know, tell them, you know, just, you know, give them, give, give, give us a check and we're going to put it into their college savings fund. 
because, you know, they're not going to obviously appreciate it now, but down the road, if they don't have to take out a massive student loan to pay for their half of their college, you know, that's a huge benefit for them. Absolutely. Um, so that's another way that you can still fund your own retirement, but at the same time, you know, money gifts that the kids get for birthdays and other holidays, you can put that money into the 529 plan to save for college. Well put. So. Um, well, that's all I had for this week. Um, thank you all for tuning in to the 90th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a great weekend, and we will be back next week with episode number 91. And it'll be a new quarter. We'll be here. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.